Good morning, New Hope. Well, good morning. I'm glad you're all awake. And uh, if you'd like to take out your outlines, I want to start a discussion about who is, and this discussion, by the way, you're going to have at work, you're going to have with your kids, you're going to have with your colleagues or your mates at school or university. This will come up, and I want you to be aware we looked at this some time ago, but I want to I've broaden this and deepened it. I want to look at who is Jesus. It is probably the most important question you'll ever have to answer. How would you answer it? To a work colleague? To a person, your neighbor? See, because there's two types of evangelism. One of the evan- types of evangelism is where you build a relationship with and somehow over a period of time, spiritual conversations happen. Another one is, you met some person and boom, it'll come up. How do you answer the question, who is Jesus? What did he say about himself and is he really God? As Christians claim. Now many people ask this question. And in fact, I was just looking again, actually afresh this morning, and I typed in, who is Jesus magazine? And up came about 40 different Uh, front covers from Newsweek to Time magazine to Time and Life. Here's one of them. I mean, people don't put this on magazines which have to sell. They answer questions that people are asking. You don't put some irrelevant question up. You should just do yourself a favor and type it in. Who is Jesus? Magazines. Newsweek. All sorts of different ones. Forbes magazine. Why are they asking this question? Next one. Here's another one. Talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls. We're going to look at those soon. Today I'm going to give you a primer on how to ground your answers. Because you cannot say, well, because the Bible tells me so. You cannot say, oh, because my mummy told me so. Or my daddy. Well, that's what I learned at church. You need to be able to ground your answers in something factual. Which is, by the way, in reality. And Jesus is the ultimate reality, I would, I would suggest to you. But before we investigate the claims of Christ today, we need to take a look. And one of the ways we can do this is to actually look at what we call the messianic prophecies. And you go, what? How is that going to help me? Well, I hope by the end of today, you're going to know how this is going to help you. It'll help us discover the true identity of Jesus Christ. It'll help. I want to start off. By talking about the suffering servant, that's a topic. And in March of 1947, a young shepherd Arab boy, Muhammad Ahmed Al Muhammad, was watching his close sheep close to the Dead Sea. So, when you say watching the sheep, what we think of here in New Zealand is beautiful green grass and and rolling hills. This is nothing like what this boy was um, looking after sheep with. In fact, on the next slide there. This is a type of pastures you had to watch your sheep. And as you can imagine, there's not much grass, so sheep tend to wander looking for grass because it's pretty spartan in in, in conditions like that. And actually, where we're looking right now is towards the mountain range. If if you can stay with me here, we turn around right over here is the Dead Sea. Okay? And that's full of salt to, to give you perspective. That's what we're looking at. And it goes from way up there near Jerusalem right down to the end of Beersheba. It's quite an interesting area. Now, 2,000 years ago, actually, let's pick that up from here. 
in that particular cave, right here, in that particular cave, one of the most profound archaeological discoveries was made. In there were numerous scrolls and thousands of manuscripts in pottery jars. And those jars contained the Dead Sea Scrolls in the Qumran Caves. Now what they really were, these jars were about yay high and about yay round and the pottery got a lid on the top and inside will be this like lunch wrap stuck in there and sealed with wax around the top. Now it's an extremely dry climate there. And so what they found are these scrolls. One of the scrolls I want to talk about today, and you can check this out. This is where Google is your friend. In, a, in the Qumran caves, was a great sea, uh, was a great Isaiah scroll. And it was originally written, by the way, it was a copy of something that was originally written 700 BC. Now, I just want to put a, a marker there, like a tent peg. When was it written originally? When was it written originally? Good. I want you to remember that. Seven, that's a long time before Jesus Christ. Seven, it's really easy. Because number seven. 700 years BC, it was originally written. Now, because these documents were so precious, they were copied by a group of scribes, and their job was like professional copyists. And they had all sorts of very um, important rituals that they made sure they had word-perfect copies of these things. They found one of these. The previous one we had was here. This one moved back our oldest copy 1,000 years. Now, a copy of this book of Isaiah is if you unwrapped your lunch wrap, as it were, it will be 24 feet long, or roughly about eight, what's that, eight meters, roughly about eight meters. And it contained all 66 chapters of the book of Isaiah. And you can see those today, by the way, a copy of this in the shrine of the book here, which is next right there in, um, in Israel. You can go and see this today. Now, why is this even important? Well, the importance of the discovery is not just this, that these scrolls predate Christ and are in good condition, but it contains one of the clearest and most specific descriptions of the Messiah and his sacrificial death. It's often to referred to as the suffering servant. And you, if you've got your Bibles, can follow along with me in Isaiah 53. And as we start to read this, I want you to ask one question. Who do you think this is reasonably talking about? Who is it that it's talking about? Picking up from verse 1, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had, interestingly, this no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like the one from whom men hide their face. In other words, you don't want to look at that. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Verse 4. Surely he took our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But, verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. Next slide. 
I'm reading. By the way, if you go to Google and you move your cursor across, show your kids. You move the cursor across, it will translate the Hebrew for you. So I'm just picking up. For, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace upon him. And by his wounds we're healed. Verse 6, next slide, I think it is. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him. Who could this be talking about? The iniquity of us all. 700 years before Christ. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb. Imagery. To the slaughter. And sheep before his shoes is as a sheep before her shoes is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Remember, Pilate was aghast. Speak to me. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. Who was either side? The thieves. And with the rich in his death, who bought the tomb? He was a rich man, Joseph Arimathea. And though he had done no violence, nor was it in deceitness mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilty, uh, a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and will be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many. Hmm, who could this be talking about? And he will bear their iniquities, their sins. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Now, wow, that's good to read a passage of Scripture. To get the context. Now, to whom do you think this is referring? Who is this suffering servant that Isaiah is speaking of? 700 years before he came in the flesh. Now to get a bit of context on this, if you've got your Bibles, go back to chapter 42. Otherwise, stay with me on the screen. This servant... Some of the characteristics of the servant will be what? Number one, he's elected by the Lord. He's anointed by the Spirit. Whoever the servant is, here's some more descriptions of him from some different chapters. He says, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my Spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Friends, on earth there is no ultimate justice. The one day will be ultimate justice. And justice is one of the key attributes. You've got God's love and you've got God's justice. Never unhook the two. You get people who focus on the justice and they become legalists. You get people who focus on on the love of God and they forget there's justice to balance it out. Two, justice is a primary concern of his ministry. In verse four, he will not grow faint or be discouraged. Until he has established justice in earth, excuse me, um, in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Justice 
is a prime concern of this man's ministry. Thirdly, his ministry has international scope. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light to the nations. Not just Israel, not just to the Jews, but to the nations. And the Bible tells us that in heaven there will be people from every land and tribe and nation and tongue. Four, God predestined him to his calling. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. He's a gifted teacher. There's a fifth one. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. That's what he says is extremely insightful. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. Number six, he experienced discouragement in his ministry. Do you know that Jesus did? He said, but I said, I have labored to no purpose. I spent my strength in vain for nothing. Yet what is due to me in the Lord's hand and my reward is with my God. See, the servant, if you read it, saw little visible reward for his service. Even his his band of 12 escaped and, and abandoned him. No change was evident in the nation by which the servant could claim and accomplish what he set out to do. The seventh, his ministry extends to the Gentiles. He says here, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, and bring those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. For God so loved all the world, not just the Jews, but all of the world. Eight, the servant encountered strong opposition and resistance of his teaching, even physically of the violent nature. Really? Yeah, look at this, verse 4. The sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the words that sustain the weary. He wakens me in the morning, by morning, wakens my ear to listen like the one being taught. The, the sovereign Lord has opened my ears, and I have not been rebellious. I have not drawn back. Here it is. I have offered my back to those who beat me, and my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. Sound familiar? I did not my, hide my face from the mocking. Remember the crown and the purple robe and the spitting. Remember how they spat at him? Amazing, eh? He is determined to finish, number nine, what God called him to do. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced, for I have set my face like a flint. Do you remember when he said, and Jesus set his face like a flint to go towards Jerusalem? Exactly the same words there. Number 10, the servant has humble origins. Interesting that. Doesn't come with pomp and ceremony with little outward prospect for success. Who has believed your message and to whom the arm of the Lord has been revealed? He grew up like a tender shoot, quite fragile, not strong or robust, like a root out of dry ground. Something good's coming out of that. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Didn't start off as a superstar, born in a stable with a smell of sheep, and donkeys. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. 11. 
Another attribute, he experienced suffering and affliction. He was despised and rejected by men. What didn't win the popularity contest here? The suffering servant was a man of sorrows, not glib platitudes, and familiar with suffering. He knew what it was like to suffer. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. That's a tough word. That's what the, the, the suffering servant was going to have. And we blew him off. We esteemed him not. He wasn't seen as some superstar coming to town. Twelve. This servant, the suffering servant, accepts vicarious and substitutionary suffering on behalf of his people. And this is from verse 4. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. And we considered, man, that guy is cursed by God, stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. Huh? And he was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace, the suffering servant, was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. And we all like sheep have gone astray, for each of us turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Second to last, he was put to death after being condemned. This is another hint. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. I've worked in an abattoir. I know what happens when animals are slaughtered. A sheep before the shearers is silent, so he didn't open his mouth. He didn't protest, wasn't yelling when he was being sentenced to death. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. That's the truth. And who can speak of his descendants? He was cut off. That means he was crucified. He was killed. Cut off from the land of the living. There it is. This is another attribute. For the transgression of our people, he was stricken. That was the reason why he was stricken and cut down. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. And with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, and nor was any deceit. What unlawful thing do you find in my mouth? He said. So, and lastly, 14. Incredibly, he comes back to life and is exalted above all other rulers. Yes, it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And through the Lord, make his life a guilt offering. He will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the Lord will prosper his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life. Amazing, eh? The light of life. And be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many. He will. So who else will justify many? He will bear their iniquities, and therefore I will give him a portion among the great. And he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with transgressions. For he bore the sins of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. Last verse, last section. See my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Verse 14, just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. So will he sprinkle 
many nations and kings uh, will shut their mouths because of him. For what they did not, uh, for what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Now, just a casual reading of this passage, just casually, leaves us in very little doubt that the suffering servant here that we've read about for the last five minutes is Jesus Christ. Now, these Old Testament prophecies in Isaiah predate Christ by how many years? Great. Now, if Isaiah 53 were the only prophetic passage in the Old Testament, it would be enough to demonstrate the divine nature of the book of Isaiah. How could Isaiah have known that? But there are many other passages in the Old Testament that predict the coming of Jesus Christ or are ultimately fulfilled by him. Some of these include Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And that seed of the woman, the offspring of Eve, is literally the seed of Eve, will ultimately crush Satan. But this human being, unlike any other human being, was specifically mentioned to be the seed of a woman. Every other one was a seed of man. Because there was no man involved in this conception. The seed of Abraham, we could go on. Genesis 49. And then the tri- this, this person will be from the tribe of Judah. Specifically mentions that in Genesis 49.10. He will be the son of David. So you can't rig this. So you can ask yourself the question, did he come through the Abrahamic line? Yes. Was he from the tribe of Judah? Yes. Was he in the line of David? Yes. Another one. This is a trick one. This is a good one to remember. That he was born in Bethlehem. The Bible says in Micah 5.2, this is the exact reference. But you, as for you, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, too little to be among the clans, from you one will go forth for me to be the ruler of Israel, and his goings out are from long ago to the days of eternity. That's eternal. But notice, and I want you to remember, how many Bethlehems are there in Israel? There are two. Remember, that it could have chosen, it could have been 50% wrong here. But they chose specifically Bethlehem Ephratah, which is exactly the one where Jesus came from. And then this famous scripture, which we're going to be quoting very soon, that he will be God. Messiah will be born as a child, but he will also be God. And he'll ruin a rule. We're going to, very soon you're going to be writing this. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given and the government will rest upon his shoulder and his name will be called. Remember, it's a child. The child will be God. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government. Amazing. Again, um, it says here, that's right, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on forevermore. So he will be God and God will be born as a child. Another mark. Malachi 3.1 again, he will come to the temple. And will be preceded by a messenger. Who was that messenger? John the Baptist. Malachi 3 1 says, Behold, I'm going to send a messenger, and he will clear the way before me. This is a Malachi, because there's 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. I'm going to send a messenger. He will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord. But I'm going to send a messenger. 
And then, which is, this is really quite stunning. Those of you who love math, who have done math, you should just follow this through. It tells you what year is going to die. Years and years before. He will die in AD 33. And you can pick that up in Daniel chapter 9. Know and understand. See, that, that, that's, the, that's, hey, sometimes God says, come, let us reason together. That means employ our brains. Come, let us reason together. No one does understand this. From the issuing of the decree to the restoring and the rebuilding of Jerusalem until the anointed man, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt in the streets and the trench, but in the times of trouble. After sixty-two sevens, the anointed will be cut off. There it is. Cut off means died and will have nothing. And the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. That's in AD 70. So here's what the deal is. He will die in AD 33. The Messiah will be cut off 483 years later, which is 69 times 7 after Cyrus's decree. We know the date exactly from secular history when that happened. After Cyrus's de- decree to build and restore, uh, to rebuild and restore Jerusalem, from the time the anointed one will be cut off, that's a crucifixion, it works out to be exactly AD 33. The city and the temple were then destroyed. So, my question to you is this. Who, out of all of history, and some of you are history buffs in this room, is from the seed of a woman? Virgin birth. From the seed of Abraham, from the Abrahamic line. You can't jack that up. From the tribe of Judah, you can't choose which tribe you're going to be born into. From the line of David, even more specific, was both God and man was born in Bethlehem, Ephratah, was preceded by a messenger and visited the temple before it was destroyed in A.D. 70, who died in exactly the year A.D. 33 as a sacrifice for our sins and rose from the dead in Isaiah 53, 11. How many people in history fit that exact target, bullseye? Only Jesus Christ is the only candidate possible candidate. So the prophetic case for Christ is strengthened even further when you discover other aspects of Isaiah 53 and other prophecies. The Old Testament prophet Zechariah predicted that God himself will be pierced as it happened when Jesus was crucified. That was unusual. You know why? Because they didn't pierce people that were crucified. What did they do instead? They broke their legs. That was standard operating procedure. The Romans crucified tens of thousands of people. They were very good at it. And at a certain time, when enough's enough, need to go home, wang, they break their legs with a club. Not pierced, but that's not what Zacharias says. This one will be pierced. It was written 520 years B.C. And it says this. You can see it in your own Bible and on the screen. They will look upon me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, bitterly grieving, as one mourns for a firstborn son. So these messianic prophecies, I want to suggest to you, are beyond coincidental. Something Truly supernatural is going on. So that's easy to say, but how do you prove it? There are are over 300 prophecies of Christ's first coming. There's a whole bunch more about his second. 
And just if we just take out of those 300, let's just choose eight. The probability of just eight of those 300 being fulfilled by one man, according to Professor Peter Stoner. You can look him up. Interesting name. <laughs> Peter Stoner, reviewed by the American Scientific Affiliation, peer-reviewed, suggests this. That you could take an area, next slide, the size of Texas, but most of you don't know what Texas looks like. You're mostly European and it covers a huge amount, right up to the top there of Germany, right out to Prague. That's a big place, Texas. You know when it's as big as Texas, that's how big it is, all right? You imagine that. And you imagine that in the old days we used to have 50-cent coins. Do you remember those things? 50-cent coins? <laughs> those 50-cent coins, the old ones. Because I, I calculated that and checked that. You could cover the entire area of that there with coins. 61 centimetres deep. So you can stack them all next to each other, 61 centimetres deep. And then randomly hide one red coin with an X on the top. Then we could get a blind man. And we could stick him in a helicopter. And we could tell him, tell him to tell the pilot, whenever you're ready, just tell him to go north, south, east, to west. You choose. And they could go that way, and you could drive around. And then you could say, at any stage, you can say, stop. And you put the thing down. Land on all these coins. A fair few coins. Imagine the coins didn't fly away, but get the point. This is what they, this is what they calculated. And the blindfold person drops and where he wants to land. And imagine he walks around any which direction he wants, still blind, this man. And then he bends over eventually and he digs down and he pulls out one coin. Just one coin. And it happens to be the exact one that you have a red X on. That, my friends, visually demonstrates the probability of having eight of these prophecies come together in one man. And the number is... 10 to the minus 17, or 1 in 10 to the 17. It would seem that God is at work here. That's just 8. Imagine the other 300. It becomes nonsensical. What are the odds of those 300 prophecies about the Messiah even coming to pass? Friends, it takes far more faith to believe in just, well, it's just a coincidence, that actually God planned it. Now, while the Jews were waiting for the political Messiah, they failed to recognize that the Messiah would first have to come as a lamb. They thought he'd come and he'd clear out these oppressive Romans. But the Bible says, no, he's going to come as a lamb to die for the sins of the world. Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and afflicted. He didn't open his mouth, but he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before his shearers are silent, he didn't open his mouth. Now, whereas John, on the other side, incisively says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He recognized immediately why he was here. And we can examine the evidence to see that at least one of Jesus' claims to be God was miraculously confirmed. For example, fulfilled prophecies about himself. But you could logically infer that Jesus is the Messiah based on the Messianic prophecies. But believing that Jesus was the Messiah, friends, is not enough. Let me just say it again. Believing Jesus was the Messiah is not enough. After all, even the demons know that Jesus is the Messiah. You can read that 
in James chapter 2, verse 19. They know that. And in the, in the Gospels, they say, Whoa, Jesus, why have you come to torment us? Son of God. They would call out. Even though the people didn't recognize it, they recognize he is the Messiah. The difference is you need to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And in order to accept the free gift of eternal life and salvation from punishment that we deserve, you need to take a step of the will, not just of the mind. And that is a huge difference. Because God will not force anybody into heaven against their will. It's kind of like the picture is, there's a slave market. And this is what used to happen in, in the New Testament days. There would be a slave market and those people were enslaved because they were indebted, indentured servants. And they could be redeemed by somebody of kindred, but you had to pay money. You couldn't free yourself. They were indebted because of, in this case, the picture is of sin, uh, uh, fleshly desires, and all those things. And we were, in, we were in the, almost like in jail because of our sin. Jesus came because he came to pay, to redeem us. He saw us in there, and he didn't want that. So he came to front the payment for the unredeemed. He paid it in full so that those who are slaves to sin may be set free from sin. So he then says to them, it has been paid. It is finished. Then all that needs to happen is the unredeemed need to accept that and walk out of there. It's a decision of the will now. You can still stay there, but the point is your debt has been paid in full and you are free to go. Praise the Lord. So, is Jesus God? And by the way, he will, just coming back to that, he will never force you to step out of that. You have to take that free step of free will to say, yes, I want to accept that gift. Thank you. So is Jesus God? A quick, pro, uh, a quick summary. Well, the prophets certainly said so. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. He will be called Wonderful Counselor. Here it is, Mighty God. So this child is God. That's the point. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus is the only known person who meets the predicted qualifications of the Messiah. So not only the prophets, the disciples said so. We sang about it this morning. Ben did. said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And you go, well, okay, well, how do we know that? Because simply it says the next verse in John 1.14, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling upon us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Paul also said so. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ. Who is God? Clear claim. Who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Again in Colossians 2.19, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. All of it. Jesus is not second in charge. He is not the junior lieutenant to God. He is co-equal with the Father. Look at this. Where do we get that from? Well, Philippians 2.6. Here it says, Who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality. Equality with God something to be grasped. 
Did you know that Jesus is equal to God? The Holy Spirit is equal to Jesus. The Holy Spirit is equal to God. That's the subject for another day, the Trinity. And then again, Titus 2.13. It says, while we wait for the blessed hope, that blessed hope that Joshua talked about this morning, the glorious appearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what gives us hope. As we wrap this up, the writer of Hebrews said that too. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. We've seen some of that this today. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and that through him he made the universe. Do you know that Jesus is the one that upholds and sustains the universe? And it says here in Hebrews 1.3, The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. So when you look at Jesus, you are seeing God, sustaining all things by his powerful world, a word. So you can have no clearer view of God than by looking at Jesus Christ. He is a complete expression of God in a human body. These are the clear claims of Christ's deity by the apostles. But what does that matter? What does that matter? Well, let me try and say it this way. If Jesus is God, then anything he teaches is true, and anything that is opposed to it is false. So when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father except through me, he was not making some arbitrary claim, but a statement that reflected the reality of the universe. Jesus is the only way because there is only one way to God. That he can reconcile his infinite justice with his infinite love. Romans 3.26. And with that verse, I will finish. It's an incredible verse. It says, it was to show us his righteousness at the present time so that he may be, here it is, just and the justifier of the one who has faith. So he's being just, and he is also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that... Through your prophets you've spoken. Through the Old Testament you have clearly spoken. And Lord, before the foundation of the world, the Lamb of God was slain. You weren't caught by surprise because, Lord, you know everything. And at the exact point of time, you sent your son Jesus to come to this earth to set us free, to redeem us from the slavery of sin. Father, there is nothing in this world that can do what you can do, and only in you can we be ever free. Thank you that when you come into our lives, you bring liberty, because, Lord, you say, where your spirit is, there is liberty. Thank you that you've set us free and redeemed us. Lord, draw us to your word. Help us understand more. Help us to grow more. 
in the knowledge and the grace of your Son, Jesus. Holy Spirit, this week, would you draw us into your word to have closer fellowship with you and to recognize you more through our daily life. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.